uh, Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. So would you uh, open your Bible there? The book of Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So pretty easy to find, just before Matthew. Remember, this is the last book before you have the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, called the intertestamental period, where God uh, was pretty much silent, and uh, not until John the Baptist showed up on the scene did God begin to speak to the nation again. And uh, this will give you a little uh, reason why that occurred, because on a leadership level, there was corruption, there was warning, and the chapter opens this way. And now, Malachi 2.1 this commandment is for you, O priests. The priest in 1.6, if you just take a peek back there. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who, notice, despise my name. And then, of course, they ask the question, how have we despised your name? Let's pray for the Lord's blessing. Father, thank you so much for everyone who's here tonight for the wonderful worship with the youth. Uh, What a blessing to see our uh, teenagers with giftings and desire to use those gifts in service of the ultimate king. Our prayer is that you would bless them, keep them, be gracious to them, let your face shine upon them and give them Shalom, give them peace, give them direction and protection from this crazy world that they so desperately need to see the truth, hear the truth, walk the truth out. And we are the ones, if you will, that are priests in their life, whether in the home or in the church or elsewhere. And Father, let us be found faithful to give them the truth in love and to model that truth for the next generation. The priests in this time of Malachi failed at that. We don't want to drop the ball. And we live in a crazy time, Lord. We don't have to mention everything that's going on. But we pray that you would keep us steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that not one thing that we do for you is ever in vain. We lift up tonight to you. Pray that you be blessed with what we do, pleased with what we do, and that you be glorified in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now, in verse 1 of Malachi 2, this is a commandment. Notice, and we might want to take the lights up so folks can see their Bibles, if you could do that for me. Thank you, guys. Now, this commandment is for you. I want to pause there for a second and say to you that this sermon tonight is for you. Now, you may say, but I'm not a priest. No. I don't live at the time that Malachi lived. No. However, it is for you. Why? Well, because there's a scripture that says all scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, is what? It's inspired by God, breathed out by God, and it is profitable. And it talks about for instruction, correction, reproof, training in righteousness, etc. I think most of you know the verse. So tonight, this sermon is for you. Now, Not you directly. You're not the direct audience that Malachi was speaking to way back in the day. But still, it is for you because all scripture is inspired by God. So the sermon is for you. You are going to get something out of it because God has breathed it out so that you can take it in. 
Malachi is as inspired as Matthew. Amen? Uh, Malachi 2.1 is as inspired as John 3.16 is. So tonight, I would encourage you to mark that. Now, this commandment is for you, O priests, and I had read you to you one six who had despised the name of God. Now, when God opened the book, remember, he reminded Israel of his love for them. If you go back to the very beginning of the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, he says in one two, Malachi 1.2, I have loved you. And I want you to know that that's also for you, that God loves you. Paul says that he loved me, Galatians 2.20, even though Paul could say I was an enemy of the cross. He loved me and he gave himself up for me. Amen? Galatians 2 verse 20. So God reminded Israel of his love, but something had went, something had gone amiss in the land and it had started at a leadership level and that is always the issue, isn't it? Because when leadership is, has lost their way, then the people inevitably follow. And of course, I, I called this message tonight a warning to priests and pastors because the application is for someone like me and other spiritual leaders in a society in a given time because we do have a stricter judgment and we have a call that we are called to be faithful to. And that call is one of holding up the truth no matter where a culture may be, no matter where the religious culture may be in a given day or hour. It is up to the religious leadership to hold up the truth to the culture and not blow with the winds where people get different ideas about you know, morality, uh, truth, etc. I could give you a long list of everything that's wrong in the culture right now, but I think I would just be reminding you of the obvious. So right now, what is happening is the warning is going out to the priests. Levi, the Levitical line was the line of priests, and Deuteronomy 33.8 says, O Levi, let your thummim and your urim, that is the discerning of the will of God, belong to your godly man whom you proved at Massa, with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them, and he did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob or Israel and your law to Israel. They shall put incense before you, whole burnt offerings on your altar. O Lord, bless his substance. That's Deuteronomy 33, 8 through 11. In other words, what's being said way back then was the priest had a responsibility, despite what might even be going on in his own family, to hold up the truth, even if he was being opposed by the closest individuals in his life or her life. And I know for some of you tonight, that's exactly where you are. Some of you who are watching tonight, you know, you have become almost an enemy in your own household just because you simply bring Jesus into the house, as it were. And if you are getting a, an extreme response, it's probably because you hit a nerve. You know what I'm saying? Because the old saying is true. If you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that barks the loudest is usually the one that got hit. 
Can I get a witness? <laughs> right? It becomes quite obvious. So if that's happening to you, if you're a newer Christian, if you are you know, beginning to put your toe in the water as to the faith, just know there is going to be some opposition. And that doesn't mean that you're on the wrong track. In fact, opposition could mean that you're on the right track. And I think it does. Now, here's the warning to the priest. If you do not listen, Malachi 2.2, if you do not take it to heart to give honor or glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Now, God lays out the issue in verse 2, and he basically says, I've been warning you, I've been warning you, I've been warning you, and it's not, you're not taking it to heart. And it's evident by the way that you behave, because you're giving me lift service, you're not giving me your best, as Alex preached last week, you're bringing, you know, second, third, and fourth best, in fact, you're bringing me leftovers, and that shows me what your heart is all about. Now, the Lord always wanted to bless Israel, and he wants to bless us. In fact, in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, when he calls the father of the nation of Israel, Abram at the time, he says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, Genesis 12, 2 and 3, and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We've been over the uh, amazing, ironic blessing in Numbers chapter 6, where the priest is supposed to put his arms up to God and invoke the name of Yahweh over the people. In fact, God instructs Moses to give this instruction to Aaron with these famous words, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord be gracious to you, the Lord make his face shine upon you and give you shalom, give you peace. The priest's job was to invoke the name of Yahweh over the people for a blessing. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord be gracious to you. But imagine if the priest is in rebellion to God. And when he begins to invoke the name of God to bless the people, there's no blessing to be given. In fact, the language here points to the fact that because the priest is out of God's will, and in, indeed in rebellion to God, that when he does the blessing, in fact, it may be just the opposite. It may turn into a curse. Now that is a scary prospect, is it not? To, you know, call upon the name of the Lord and get the opposite of what you would desire. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 17, it says, if your heart turns away and you will not obey but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. And then he says, Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Listen. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob to give them. 
On Sunday, we're going to talk about honor your father and mother. And when Paul quotes that commandment in Ephesians chapter 6, he says it's the first commandment with a promise. And the promise is for what? It's for long, abundant life. And I'm going to dig that out on Sunday, and we're going to have everybody in here from the youngest ones to the teenagers so that I can beat up on them for you parents, all right? So make sure you're here on Sunday because I'll tell them to honor and obey you. However, there's a flip side of that, and that is that dads, moms, we're not to provoke our children to, to anger or wrath, right? We're to bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. The problem with the priests is that they were not taking it to heart. You have not set your heart to honor me, Malachi 2 in the NIV 2.2. Notice that the issue is the heart. If you're interested in the Hebrew language, the word for heart is leb, L-E-B. And it's actually just simply two Hebrew letters moving from right to left. It's a lamed that is basically our L, and it looks like a shepherd's staff. And the bait is a house. Uh, Jesus was born in Beit Lachem, the house of bread. Beit is house. Lachem, a shepherd's staff, is our L. And so you have Leb when you put the two words together. Now get this. Here's what it means. I'm always telling you about the Hebrew picture language. Let me just give you an example. The L is a shepherd's staff. What, what do you think that represents? It's very simple. Direction, right? You follow the shepherd. He's going to try to get the sheep where they need to go. And a house speaks of a family or a life. So the heart is all about who controls the direction of a house or a family or of an individual. See how the pictures come together? Very simple. Just two Hebrew letters, a lamed and a bait. And it tells you what the word's all about. The heart is all about direction. In the Hebrew idea of the heart, where we would say, a movie might say, follow your heart, or someone might give you advice, follow your heart. And then we're quick to, you know, quote Jeremiah back to them, your heart is deceitfully wicked, man, <laughs> right? Okay, but here's the deal. In, in Hebrew thought, the heart is the command center of your life. I stole that from a commentator, but I think it's really good. The heart is the command center of your life. That is, when the Bible addresses your heart, it's basically saying this. You need to make an informed, knowledgeable decision about the direction in which you are going. That's what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. It means to let the shepherd's staff guide your house. Everybody with me? That's the simple meaning of what it, the heart is all about. Who is the shepherd of your household? Who is the shepherd of your life? Which direction are you going? You might say, well, how can I know the way? Jesus is the way. His word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So you just keep growing. You just take in a little by little, and uh, the Lord will guard your heart, and he will guide your heart. In Jeremiah 12, when the nation was being warned of impending judgment, it has made a desolation, Jeremiah 12, 11, desolate. It mourns before me. This is what it says. The whole land has been made desolate because, listen, no man lays it to heart. One writer says the expression to place upon the heart is found a dozen times in the Old Testament. It means to determine a course of action 
in response to one's knowledge or awareness of something. So that simply fits with leb, what I told you the Hebrew word is. And I shared with you a name that is Caleb. So some of you might have friends that are called Caleb. And Caleb in Hebrew means all heart. And Caleb is the name in Hebrew for a dog. Listen, because dogs are all heart, aren't they? My dog is. In fact, I was, uh, I saw a story about a military dog who went into a building that there was some sort of raid and, and there was a battle. And this dog was wounded and lost a limb, uh, but, but went in there basically to protect the rest of the group. And this, uh, the owner or the trainer of the dog was saying that this dog, without even a thought, if whatever a dog thinks, would give its life for its master. Dogs are all heart. God wants us to be followers of him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. But that wasn't happening. God wants to bless a person. And remember, uh, it, it's not going to take, you know, you're not going to be perfect, but when your heart is in love with God, David had a heart after God, and, and David made some mistakes, but that was why God had a hand of blessing upon David, and even the idea of choosing David was he was a man after God's own heart. But the priests are not listening, and the question is, am I? Am I tuned into God's voice? Am I taking it and of uh, verse 2, am I taking it to heart? In other words, when I come before the word of God, am I saying to the Lord, this word to me is going to change my direction to your direction. The staff will move my house, my heart, where you want it to go. Is that the way you come to the word of God? Is that the way you come on your knees in prayer? Well, the priests weren't doing that. And he says, behold, in light of that, I'm going to rebuke, notice, your offspring. And this is ugly, but here it is. And I will spread refuse or dung on your faces, the refuse or dung of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Now, unfortunately, the offspring of the priests were going to face a pretty severe punishment. The, uh, there was a line, a Levitical line. You guys, I think most of you know that the tribe of Levi, which is one of Jacob's sons, was chosen as the priestly line. And so they call it the Levitical line. That just simply means the line, that particular family was given the priestly responsibilities. And that went down from generation to generation. So you had to be in the line of Levi to be in the priestly service. And so because of the disobedience of the priest at this time, future generations who would be priests were going to suffer. In fact, the nation you know, was going to be basically bankrupt and then called back to repentance when John the Baptist shows up 400 years later. And so this is where I would tell you, when you read the commandments like in Exodus 20, and God talks about, 
that the generations to follow to the third and fourth generation will pay the price of the disobedience of parents or specifically those who hate God, this is what I think it's talking about. That there's a ripple effect, um, you know, of rebellion. Hosea 4, 6 through 9 reads this way. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Hosea 4, 6 through 9. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I will also ignore your children. The more the priests increase, the more they sinned against me. They exchange their glory for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. And it will be like people like priests. I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. And here, in a very picturesque uh, way, God says, I'm going to rub the refuse on their face. They're going to have to face up <laughs> to what they've been doing. Now, I was reading some on this, and what they would do is when they took a sacrificial animal, the entrails of the animal, including the waste within that animal, were, you could imagine that when they were sacrificing a bunch of animals, like on a festival day, it was a pretty ugly scene. You're talking about, you know, things, I won't get graphic, but cutting open animals and entrails and all that stuff. And so what they would do is they would take the, the waste, if you will, and move it to another location. And God said, because you are not sacrificing your best to me, I'm going to take the waste of that sacrificial area and I'm going to rub it on your face because that's essentially what you've been doing to me is you've not been honoring me, and you're going to be carried away, and I think this is out of your position as priests, you're going to be carried away from your position the way they would carry that waste away from that area of sacrifice. I think that's what God is saying. In Revelation, uh, churches are told that unless you repent, I'm trying to remember which church it is, I will remove your lampstand from its place, remember? And that's a New Testament church, so Jesus walks among the churches and says, repent or your lampstand's gone. And here the priests are being told, I want you to repent, otherwise I'm going to come and remove you from your position. You might remember in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Eli was the priest, and when little Samuel was being called by God, and Eli had two sons, and they were called sons of Belial. They were basically satanic, worthless men. And they were committing abominable acts within the temple area or the tabernacle area. And Eli, who was a godly priest, wouldn't do anything about it. He wouldn't correct his sons. And God said these words to Eli the priest. He says, because you have honored your sons above me, I'm going to cause desolation to happen. And uh, this is basically what happened. The sons were dealt with, and then Eli actually ended up perishing, and then little Samuel takes the place and becomes the faithful priest. But not the, not the seed of Eli. They were eliminated because dad wasn't holding the line. And God says, then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, 2-4 of Malachi, that my covenant may continue with Levi. Now there's that Levitical line, says the Lord of hosts. Now here's a hopeful verse. Even with all this warning and all this uh, you know, strong language, 
that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. You know, God is patient and he wants, uh, if, if the covenant's been broken, he wants there to be forgiveness and a fresh start. And that is even some hopeful language here, even though they've been basically thumbing their nose at God. If you want the reference, uh, it's Revelation 2.5. I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And that's right after you have left your first love. Now, my covenant with them, when God made the covenant with the priestly line of Levi, 2.5 of Malachi, it was a covenant of what? Life and peace. And I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. When I originally called the priest, this was the covenant to which I had called the priest. I gave them a covenant of life and peace because that's what the priests were supposed to impart to the people. And so life and peace are two elements of this life that I don't know how you could exist without them. Amen? I'm talking about spiritual life here. I'm talking about eternal life because he who has the Son has that life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have that life. So all of you that are Christians here have new life in Jesus Christ. Amen? You've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son from death to life. Praise God. And you've been given peace because he himself, Ephesians 2.14, is our peace. He's the prince of peace. He imparts peace. He gives peace. Life and peace is the covenant. And that's the new covenant in Christ as well. Amen? You get new life and you get peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can it get any better than that? I don't know how people live without life, new life in Christ, and shalom, peace from God. Do you? Now, I know that before I became a Christian, I was still doing my thing. But I didn't have life, that is, spiritual born-again life, nor did I have peace with God. I was really at an enmity with him. And this is an interesting reference. I want you to turn over to an account in the book of Numbers. So go back, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers 25. Let me show you, if you're reading a study note on this or anything, uh, you'll note that a mention is to Phineas. Phineas is the grandson of Aaron, coming from that Aaronic line or the line of Levi, Numbers chapter 25. And the people of Israel got their sel themselves in trouble. Take a look, Numbers 25, verse 1. When Israel remained in Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, 25, 2 of Numbers. They invited the people to sacrifice to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So now Israel's breaking commandments one and two, having other gods before the God of the Bible, bowing down to idols. And so Israel joined themselves to a false god called Baal, or Baal of Peor. When you see Baal of a location, that's because Baal was worshipped in many different places. Here it was in a place called Peor. And the land, uh, the, excuse me, Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel because of obvious reasons, breaking commandments, cheating on him. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves, those who have committed this sin to Baal of Peor. Now that's 
radical, but here's what happened. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman, that is, one from whom they were committing sin with, in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation, a brazen act of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting because judgment was coming. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, so there's a priest now, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them. Apparently they were uh, in the act through the man of Israel and the woman through the body. And notice what happened. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. And those who died by the plague were incredible number, 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy or zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, say, behold, I give him my covenant. What's the covenant there? There it is. It's the covenant of peace, or you could say life and peace. And it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. And then we get the names of the individuals involved there. Would you notice that because Phineas was zealous for the things of God, and this was, of course, an extreme example in the Old Testament, he stayed the hand of God and, and he basically did it by making atonement, by dealing with the sin right there on the spot. And I know uh, some of this is hard to take, but this is what occurred. And so Phineas is kind of the figurehead here, back to Malachi, of what God is saying. The covenant of the priests. That is, that the priests care more about the honor of God than about what the people think. For example, Phineas could have just said, well, you know, the people... Uh, boys will be boys, and, you know, uh, the Moabite women are really attractive, and what are we going to do, and all of that. You know, we can certainly understand why. Uh, no, he didn't do that. And that's the temptation in our culture today, is to excuse the things that are going on and just basically say, well, you know, and this is being done all over the place in multiple denominations, and do you think, let me just ask you, do you think it pleases the Lord when we compromise just because the culture is compromising? Now, I'm not talking about speaking the truth in love. I'm not talking about making sure we get to the gospel first before we address everything that's wrong in someone's life. But at some point, there has to be zeal and passion for God's ways, for life and peace. Listen to this. Proverbs 3, 1 and 2 says, My son, don't forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, Proverbs 3, 2, they will add to you. Does it do anybody good if, let me, let me use an example. Let's say that someone's in a lifestyle that you know there's a Bible verse and it's clearly opposite of what God would say for someone to do. And let's say that you're trying to be nice. And so you say to them, or you won't say anything to them. And for some people, some well-meaning Christians today 
you affirm them in their rebellion. So you say to them, essentially, even though your lifestyle is clearly against God, I think it's great that you're doing such and so and so and so, and you affirm them. What you have done, my friend, my brother, my sister, is you have affirmed them in their lostness. And I want you to actually chew on that for a second. Because while it's true that I'm a sinner saved by grace and I need to approach people in gentleness and respect, it is not ever right to confirm someone in their lostness. If the Bible says that's not of God and God's going to judge that, and I tell somebody, you're all right, thumbs up, I affirm it, then I am confirming or affirming them in their rebellion and lostness before God. Let me ask you, is that love? I don't think it is. Now, I know all of us have sensitivities and we want to be nice and we want to show the love of Jesus to people. But love also does speak the truth. And there's a way to speak truth where hopefully you're not coming down on everybody that you meet as you stand on your high horse because you're bound to fall off of it once it begins to gallop a little bit, right? There's a way to do things, but the priests were in trouble. They weren't being obedient to God. They were, I don't know what it was, pressure, etc. but they were, they were kind of bowing to their culture. And so what should a priest be doing? Verse six, true instruction was in his mouth. And when Phineas and the, assuming all the best of the priests, here's what would happen. This is translated from Torah emet or Torah emet. Literally means, verse six, instruction of truth. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, that he is to handle the word of God well, to divide it accurately, to be a good steward of the truth of God. Notice, Torah, true instruction, Torah, Amet, was in his mouth, the priest, and, up, and uh, unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me, assuming the best now, when it was right, in peace and uprightness, and he turned, the man of God, speaking for God, what does it say? Many back from iniquity. All right, so sometimes we hear the word of God and instead of saying amen, we say ouch. All right, been there many times, right? All of a sudden, the, the word of God goes forth and ouch and ooh and ah and I'm not doing that right and ooh and preacher, this belongs to you and I say, no, you can keep it. Remember when I started this sermon, I said it's for you. Not for me. <laughs> now it's for me too. One thing I want you to know is all week before I deliver these sermons to you, I'm getting the oohs and the ouches. And, and I want to share. I, I really, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sharing guy. <laughs> but here's the thing. Notice, the, notice the, the truth about, and let me just apply it to a pastor today. A pastor is to rightly divide the word of truth and to bring true instruction from his mouth and not have unrighteousness found on his lips. And he's to walk with God because when you're walking with God, that alone is the core foundation. And then you can share the truth, which will turn many back from iniquity. The duty of the Kohen, 
K-O-H-E-N, the priest, was to transmit knowledge of the Torah to Israel. It was a preserver of the life of the nation. Reading from one writer, when a society abandons truth, it loses the true meaning of life, loses its peace. Romans 3.17 puts it this way. They don't even know the way of peace. Truth perishes in the streets. And now when you ask somebody what truth is, they'll say something like this. Well, my truth is dot, dot, dot. <laughs> it's like, your truth? What do you mean? So what if your truth is different from my truth? What if you have two worldviews? Think about it just logically. Let's say that you have Buddhism that teaches that you live many, many, many times over and get reincarnated over and over again until you get off the wheel of samsara, the wheel of reincarnation, and go into the, back into the, ascend uh, back into the great one. Or Christianity that says you live once and you gotta receive Jesus Christ and the gospel to be saved. You can't have two worldviews that contradict one another and have them both be true. Either they're both false or one of them is false and one of them is true. Everybody with me? So this is just logical example. Let's say that you are at a restaurant with a friend and you're having lunch and you say, hey, did you know that three plus three equals six? And your friend, and you, let me, you put out the pepper and the salt and you, three plus three is six. And they go, no, I think it's five. <laughs> One of you is wrong. Amen? But someone might say, but five is my truth. <laughs> Well, <laughs> your truth ain't truth. See, that's what's happened, is we kind of shifted definitions a little bit now so that truth is no longer objective, corresponding to reality. If you ever wonder what objective truth means, objective truth corresponds to reality. It's actually what's real. Three plus, plus three is six, that corresponds to reality. If I put the salt shakers out, etc., I'm going to get six. If you feel like it's five, well, that does not correspond to reality, and that makes it subjective truth. It's all in the eye of the beholder. So objective truth corresponds to reality. Subjective truth says, I feel like it's five. Well, that's nice that you feel that way, but it's six. Have you ever been there before? It's six. Count them. <laughs> Three, four, five. No, it's five. <laughs> at, at, at some point, and, I, and I'm getting to a culturally relevant point, at some point we can't even have a conversation anymore. Because if you are convinced that even though your conclusion doesn't correspond to reality, and I argue from an objective framework, but if you're convinced it's five or if you feel it's five, it's five, we can't have a conversation anymore. Because language doesn't even mean anything anymore. Terms get redefined and we can't even, truly, I'm telling you what's happening in our culture right now, friends, I hope you see it. We can't even have a conversation with people anymore on a lot of topics because it's not about corresponding to reality truth anymore. It's about how people feel. That is not the meaning of heart and 
what I told you, the command center of who we are. It's to assess knowledge and follow a path in keeping with that knowledge. And get this. So I told you that true instruction is Toret uh, Emet. M-E-M, where we get the name Emma, means the mother or the life giver, literally in Hebrew, the strong water, the first strong water of a family, mom, stability. She's the life giver, right? Emet means truth. Get this. And in the Hebrew picture language, truth is the mother of the covenant. Get this. True instruction means that when you hear it and receive it and follow it, you will be in keeping with the covenant and your life will be stable and full of life and peace. When you don't preach it, when you don't receive it, when you don't follow it, you'll get exactly the opposite, instability and ultimately chaos. Because if truth is dismissed, mama is gone. And when mama ain't holding down the house, what do we got? We got, come on, brethren, chaos. You know, you, you find that dad. I'm a bachelor this weekend. My wife's going on the retreat. And you just see Cheetos hanging from his mouth. The kids are having cake for breakfast. It's all manner of chaos. <laughs> Truth is Emma, the mother of the covenant. Once truth is removed, the covenant can't be upheld. Amen? True of the new covenant, true of what is being talked about here. The priests were walking with God, and that's the foundation. For the lips, seven of Malachi 2, seven, of a priest should preserve. That's the Hebrew word shamar. It means the priest has not only got to preach the truth and walk with God, he's to watch over. When uh, uh, Adam was put in the garden, Genesis 2.15, he was called to cultivate it and keep it. Shamar. Guard it. Guard his family. Guard what God had given uh, responsibility over. And here the priest is to guard the word or the truth of God, notice, for the lips of the priest should preserve, shamar, knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he, the priest, is what? He's the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Do you know that Malachi's name, when we introduce the book, means, it's Malak in Hebrew, he's the messenger of the Lord. Do you know when the seven churches of Revelation are addressed and it says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Do you know why that many commentators believe that that's the, the leading pastor, teaching pastor of those churches? Because the word angelos in Greek is the word for messenger. And angels were messengers. But sometimes the word applied to human messengers. So here in the Old Testament, the priest is the Malak of Yahweh. And in the New Testament, seven churches in Revelation, it may well be that the angel of the church of Smyrna or Laodicea is the senior pastor or lead teaching elder of that fellowship. Now, does that change your view when that church is being addressed and all of a sudden that pastor is being told, here's what you're doing good and here's what you better clean up. Otherwise, I'm turning off the lights. The light ain't gonna stay on for you. If you know, <laughs> that was a hotel commercial. Anyway, never. 
The priest's call was to teach. The pastor is to teach the word of God and entrust the word to faithful men who are able to teach. And Timothy is told in 1 Timothy 6.20 and 2 Timothy 1.14 to guard the treasure that was entrusted to him. Amen? So part of a pastor's job is to guard the truth. So sometimes we watch people having a debate about uh, various things. Whenever the gospel is attacked or essential doctrine is attacked, one of the jobs of the pastor priest is to guard the truth and protect the flock from savage wolves that will come in and not spare the flock. Amen? You guys out there? That was a good time for an amen. Indeed, we are ambassadors for Christ as though he were pleading through us. And so we're winding down, but notice, that was, that was the good stuff that was supposed to be going on, but as for you, back to the priest of Malachi's day, you've turned aside from the way. And that's not from the Mandalorian, by the way. This is the way. Jesus, in fact, Christianity in the time of Jesus was called simply known as the way because of what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But the priest, here was the problem. They had turned aside from the way. And what was the result? They had caused many to stumble by the instruction. And instead of causing many to turn back, verse 6, by contrast, they had corrupted the covenant of Levi says the Lord of hosts. Once the priest turned aside, many people, instead of being turned back to righteousness, verse six, were stumbled. Have you seen the number of pastoral falls in the last two years? They're everywhere. Stories coming out about well-known churches everywhere, and you're like, wow. You look, you look over here, and it's happened over here. You look over here, it's happened over here. And you're like, what in the world is going, down, going on? Here's what's happening. If the pastor loses his way, instead of turning many to righteousness, what does he do? He stumbles many. Jesus said, woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. They're going to come. But woe to the man through whom they come. It would have been better for him if he had a heavy millstone hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus Christ said that. And so for anyone entering into the ministry, and I think it's wonderful that that passion is there, that has to be a consideration. Now, no, there's no perfect man or woman, of course, but the responsibility, of course, is still weighty. They were not walking with the Lord they had turned aside from the way, and instead of, instead of turning many to sin, they caused many to stumble. Instead of standing in awe of God, they violated the covenant of Levi, and the nation was hemorrhaging because of it. So sometimes when people talk about America, they say, if America will have a turnaround, it will be right here, brethren. Amen? It will be right here. Because if it's not happening here, where do you expect it to happen? We talk about revival like it has to emerge somewhere on a street corner. And certainly there are revivals that happen, famous streets and the like. But the point is that it happens in the heart of God's people. 
When they are revived, then the nation changes. When we are a light on the hill, then it, it impacts the nation. So, so I suppose, see if you agree with me, that if we're going to curse the darkness and we can go down our list of everything that's wrong, perhaps we've got to take a fresh look at our own hearts and say, is the staff of the shepherd leading my house? Can I say, as for me and my house, we're serving the Lord? Then you have generational benefits. Then you have societal uh, blessings that come. The final verse says, and so I also have made you despised. You despise me, chapter 1, verse 6. So I make you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but you're showing partiality to the partiality in the instruction. So something like this, and many verses I could give you, but let me just summarize. For a bribe, you tell somebody what they want to hear. You show up somewhere, but you charge for your services. You make it all about the money. You tell stories about the money to try to get people to give the money so that you can improve your little kingdom. You take the bribe. You don't balance the scales. If you're in a tough spot and someone well-known is before you and it wouldn't be politically correct to say the truth, you kind of wiggle out of it a little bit. You don't balance the scales. You don't, truth is not, you know, on, on the, on the uh, upper threshold of what you do. You kind of just, you know, you're willing to bend and, 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 and go with it because it's the, it's the pragmatic thing to do, right? And all of a sudden, more and more of it happens and we lose our way. Because the emperor has no clothes on, but nobody wants to say, emperor, get a towel. You naked. <laughs> right? Why? Because of pressure. Because of, look, it's real. And it, it hits people, you know, in all facets of life. And so God says, you, you're despising me. So I'm going to make you despised in the sight of the people. So here's what happened. This is what's implied in the language. This is my last thing I'm sharing with you. It appears that the people lost respect for the priests. The people, even though the priests were often doing what they wanted to hear, do you think that those people were going to come to those priests when they were really in trouble? Do you think that those people who watch the priest compromise and blow like the wind would come to them for a word of truth in a season of someone being terribly sick or maybe all of a sudden God's really grabbed their attention and they want an answer? Are they going to go to that guy? No. And God says, because you are now despised in the sight of the people, what you've modeled to them is now you. And they don't respect you. So they won't come to you for an answer. So let me say this to you. If you're in a situation where you feel like you've been disrespected and stuff, just hold on. I worked in the uh, secular business world for a lot of years. And I was surprised that people who often joked about me being Holy Joe and, oh, here comes the pastor. Shh. They would come to me privately when they needed a word of truth. 
So don't lose heart. Because when you honor God, he says, the one that honors me, I will honor. Father, thank you. Oh, this is, this is a timely word. It's not an easy word, but it, Malachi is not an easy book. But it's a timely word. And I just want to come back to something we just read. The priest had lost their way from the way. Father, if we could just simplify this message tonight, we would just say that if we're following you, everything else is going to fall into place, whether a pastor or you know, someone who's in, in some other uh, walk of life. Um, we need to follow the one who's the way. Would you keep your head and heart bowed just for a moment? Jesus said, I am the way. God has made a way. God so loved you that he gave his only son. Jesus becomes the bridge to God. There's a great, I want you to imagine a great gulf, a great chasm between sinful man and a holy God. How, how do we cross over? How could we ever be right in his eyes? He's holy. He dwells in unapproachable light. How could we ever be right with him? And the Bible says that Emmanuel, God with us, came down. And he became the bridge between sinful man and a holy God. And I want you to imagine that that chasm now has a big cross set on it. And because of the blood of Jesus Christ, man can cross over from death to life. Religion won't do it. Good works won't do it. You can't do enough. You'd be like jumping off the pier at Newport Beach and trying to jump to Catalina. You ain't going to make it. You're going to get farther than some people, but you're not going to make it. We need Jesus. We need the cross, the resurrection. If you've not received him, if you're watching right now or you're here tonight and you've heard his voice, I love you. I want you to follow me. I want you to make me your king. I want you to follow. I want you to take this to heart and say, as for me and my house and my marriage and my life, we're following the Lord Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And he'll give you the grace that you need. He'll save you by grace. He'll keep you by grace. He'll grow you by grace. And you will find life and peace. You might say, Pastor Michael, how do I do it? What, what does it take to know him? Well, he is literally a prayer away. And the Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, that would be the Lord Jesus, will be saved. So would you take this moment and pray it? If the Lord is calling you and you feel an undeniable tug, the prayer would be, Lord Jesus, pray it if it's you. Would you save me? I believe that you are the true and living God who came down to save me. I believe you died on that terrible cross, taking my punishment there. I believe you rose from the dead to defeat my mortal enemy. I turn away from not following you, following the world, following my own dictates. And I trust in you, and I'm gonna follow you. Would you save me? And equip me to do just that. 
Lord, thank you that you are gracious to hear our prayer like that. Not a perfect prayer, but a prayer for salvation. Thank you that you uphold your people and strengthen them day by day with life and peace. As we're moving into a wonderful holiday, I pray that that would be two wonderful experiences for all the wonderful church family here. Life and peace in Christ. Amen.